0: I'm Dick Moberg, and for more than 40 years, I've been developing technology to advance our understanding of the injured brain. I've had a chance to work with some of the leading minds in the field of neuromonitoring, including physicians, researchers, and entrepreneurs. I want to share their stories with you in the form of a weekly podcast so you can stay current on the latest developments in the field and the innovative people behind them. This is my neural network. Hi, I'm Dick Mober and I'm here in Berlin with uh, Professor Jens Dreyer, and he's at Charité, which is the top medical school in, in Germany. And he goes way back as one of the founders and, and uh, pioneers of spreading depolarization research welcome to the podcast yeah hello Dick. <laughs> <laughs> thanks yeah and uh we, we've had a lot of fun together in meetings and stuff absolutely yeah. <laughs> we've known
1: each other for many years yeah and
0: and uh, certainly uh everybody i talk to looks up to you as really one of the pioneers in this new and exciting field and one of the questions is uh, how did you get into this um,
1: okay. yeah actually a long time ago um, it was in, in 1993 And it was by pure coincidence. So um, I I had started in Munich uh, to do animal experiments about functional activation. And my task was to test uh, the influence of potassium and nitric oxide on functional activation. Functional activation happens when you move your hand and then blood flow increases in the brain. And I placed drugs uh, on the uh, brain surface of a rat. And all of a sudden, I observed funny drops in blood flow that could last for minutes and then recover. And I had no clue what it was. And uh, it took me about one and a half years to find out that this was an inverse neurovascular response to a phenomenon that at the time we called spreading depression. Today, we call it spreading depolarization. So by coincidence, I discovered this phenomenon. It was published then only in 1998, Five years later,
0: but this was actually the start for me into this field. So I came from animal experiments, and and uh, I think some of us know the history after that. Uh, so why don't you tell that about what happened with uh, Tony Strong and with all that? So, yeah,
1: yeah. We had actually we had started in the um, in the late '90s. We wanted to do a non-invasive project with neon infrat- thread spectroscopy. Uh, to uh, measure uh, these uh, uh, spreading waves in the brain, which actually turned out to be very difficult, and we never measured uh, anything that looked like it. But uh, we got in contact uh, with a lot of researchers around us, and among them um, were, uh, in particular, Martin Lauritsen and Martin Fabricius, and they were in close contact with Tony Strong. And Tony um, had the fantastic idea to place an electrode strip in patients with traumatic brain injury to um, search for these uh, spreading waves. Um, Martin Lauritsen and Martin Fabricius were part of this project or became part of this project which resulted in the paper in 2002. And then in 2003, this whole group of enthusiasts were meeting in Copenhagen To establish what we call the COSPIT group today.
0: Yeah, and that group has uh, grown significantly over the years, and and we've had, um, you know, we've gone to quite a few of the meetings, and it's uh, it's really exciting, something very new and fresh, and uh, I think that, uh, and and the next meeting is coming up in Lyon. Exactly, yeah. And uh, a little plug for that meeting. And if (laughs) any of our listeners want to go to that, it's going to be a wonderful meeting.
1: Yeah, it will uh, be a wonderful meeting. Lyon is a a beautiful city. Uh, The organizers, uh, Stefan Marinescu and Baptiste Balanza, um, have done uh, very uh, great work on on, uh, spreading depolarizations in animals, and uh, Baptiste is currently starting to establish this in the clinic. Um, And we will meet uh, from all corners of the world. Last time we were uh, in Japan and uh, the meeting before was in Florida. So it's really international. And the great fun of these meetings is that it's very interdisciplinary. It's one of the few places where you can discuss basic scientists with clinicians and and they are all extremely interested in, in the work of the others.
0: Yeah. And we've, uh, we've enjoyed it for that reason. And in, uh, in Florida, we, um, you know, Jed, and I guess you have talked about spreading depolarizations as um, tsunamis. And so we, uh, we, we brewed brain tsunami beer for the meeting in Florida. And we hope to have that beer again in, in Lyon. <laughs> Absolutely. And more t-shirts. Right. And very, very nice. <laughs> right. And I, I think that illustrates the, uh, the community, of this uh, organization and uh, this sort of closeness and the, the commonness of, of the purpose. And it's uh, really to your credit and, and Jed's and a few others to really uh, you've made this meeting very special um, in terms of people looking at this common goal. Yeah, I
1: think that um, uh, it's, 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 of course, I mean, what, um, the, the background of all this is uh, super serious because uh, it's about people uh, with stroke and traumatic brain injury, um, and uh, we are trying to develop um, new approaches for better diagnostics, and better treatment. But we also have fun, you know, that and this and friendship, and that that is a good aspect. Yeah.
0: So why don't you uh, why don't you go back to to what happened after those uh, the early publications? Um, how has this progressed? And what do you think are the significant milestones? And, you know? Yeah. Back in
1: 1998, um, uh, my idea was that these this inverse neovascular coupling to spreading depolarization could play a role in subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, for two obvious reasons. Um, we, we needed two factors, high potassium and um, a factor that uh, decreases the concentration of nitric oxide, uh, either pharmac- pharmacologically with a nitric oxide synthase inhibitor, or we could also use hemoglobin. So and hemoglobin is very interesting because it is a powerful uh, drug that lowers the nitric oxide level. Uh, it's basically not a drug, it's a, a protein of the body And it is released in the subarachnoid space after subarachnoid hemorrhage. And we we know that patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage develop delayed infarcts uh, after the initial hemorrhage. This takes about a week. um, And then these infarcts occur. So our idea was that this could be the mechanism um, underlying um, the delayed ischemic stroke after subarachnoid hemorrhage. So the first step after we learned that we can measure these waves for me was that I would like uh, wanted to know whether this occurs in subarachnoid hemorrhage, and this uh, actually resulted then in 2006 in a brain paper where we showed for the first time that spreading depolarizations occur in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage abundantly, a lot of them. You know, we saw that in the, about
0: 70% of the patients. No, that's a uh, yeah, that's uh, that's very significant. And it just uh, was a year ago, you had a there was a special edition of uh, Journalist Cerebral Blood Flow and Metabolism that I think you and uh, Jed edited, which gathered papers together uh, from a lot of other researchers. Maybe you can just talk about sort of the, um, the the other research that is going on in this field. A little bit of a summary of of uh, what people are looking at. It's, it, it's really spread.
1: <laughs> yeah. The phenomenon of spreading depolarization is the most underestimated mechanism of neurology. Um, It is uh, the mechanism of the cytotoxic edema that has been known to a few people for a very long time. Uh, It's now um, much more appreciated by a wide audience. Um, so the applications of the spreading depolarization fields range from stroke to traumatic brain injury, migraine, migraine aura. They also have uh, inter- interactions uh, in the in the epileptology field. So this is just uh, the, the clinical field, and of course, also uh, a circulatory arrest um, leads to spreading depolarization. Then um, it's very interdisciplinary. There are neurologists, of course, there are neurosurgeons. They implant the electrodes. There are radiologists, they are anesthetists. For example, Baptiste Balanza is an, from Lyon. He is an anesthetist. Um, there are, uh, from the basic science, neurobiologists. There are also modelers. Um, I, I think the, the, the range of people that work in this field is, is simply enormous. And, and, and then, I mean, what are our goals? First of all, we would like to learn to read what's going on in our patients in the intensive care unit. Uh, patients are often sedated and ventilated. You cannot do uh, an MRI every half an hour or every hour, but you can do continuous electrocarticography. So, when you see a cluster of spreading depolarizations, this tells you that this patient is developing a new stroke, then you can start the treatment. But to, um, to, to determine the specificity, the sensitivity of all this, uh, this is, a, is an important uh, issue. Then the question of therapeutics, Shall we block? should we block spreading depolarizations or should we not block spreading depolarizations? That's an important question. It's not so easy. It's clear that they are detrimental in areas where metabolism is disturbed. But maybe they also have beneficial effects in areas where um, they run through relatively normal tissue. This is is not really understood. The blood flow response is a highly important uh, target for the development of treatment. yeah, is just and non-invasive development of, of, of recording. That would also be an important goal, but also this goal is not so easy to achieve.
0: Right. And uh, I was just going to get into that. And I, I think it's fair to say that we would know nothing about epilepsy if it weren't for EEG machines, right? And now we've had those for many years. Um, and I think... Um, that's one of the things that is probably holding this field back a little bit, just because um, it would be nice if you had a non-invasive, uh, you know, way to to detect these. And maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about the the challenges. I mean, as we we talked earlier, that's sort of the holy grail. Why is it so difficult?
1: Yeah, actually, we we published the first paper on, on non-invasive detection in two thousand twelve in Brain and we found very nice correlates between the subdural electrocorticography and the scalp electroencephalography. So when there was a spreading depolarization, this leads to a a depression of the spontaneous activity. And you not only see that uh, in the uh, subdural electrocorticography, but you often see that also in the scalp electroencephalography. Unfortunately, Um, The features are more difficult to interpret. For example, the spread is very well seen with the electrocorticography, where the electrodes are directly on the brain. But the spread is much harder to see or is not possible to see when uh, you do scalp electroencephalography. The slow potentials are giant when you do subdural electrocorticography, in particular when you do direct current or DC electrocorticography. But with scalp electroencephalography, these slow potentials are actually very, very small. So um, it is challenging to use that. Um, There are also other reasons for depressions. For example, sedatives can also induce a depression of the activity. And to differentiate this from spreading depolarizations is is a
0: challenge. Yeah, and um, that's going to be a tough one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I, I know you can uh, you can use um, things like Laplacian transforms to try to focus what's underneath an electrode on the scalp, but I think even with that, it's um, it, it's tough just to see these patterns.
1: It's, it also, I mean, plays a role that, of course, this is an, in the environment of an intensive care unit. Patients are washed, they are moved. Um, so the electrodes have to stay in place um, you, to have a good recording with gap of It would be ideal to have a lot of electrodes. You have to take care that the electrodes don't press on the skin. All these practical issues um, have to be considered.
0: Well, I think we'll just have to wait. <laughs>
1: we have to wait. <laughs> wait, wait. But I mean, there's also other technologies that, yeah, that yeah. May, may solve the problem. And we um, we don't think of it now or others already have it in their mind to develop this. Sure. We don't know.
0: Yeah. You know, and um, I just want to uh, relate. I was up at the University of Pennsylvania. This is about two years ago with uh, my friend Ram Balu. And he was showing me a case in the, um, you know, uh, the recordings of a patient in, in the ICU. And, and he had just become a big believer of spreading depolarizations. And he was, um, he, he showed me, and, and they, they weren't even recording EEG in this patient, but he showed me these just big transitions in the uh, metabolic, uh, you know, uh, measurements they're, they're, they were looking at and some of the other parameters. And then he, he said, I wonder if those are spreading depolarizations and he gave the patient ketamine and they disappeared. (laughs) Now, now this is just one example. It's an anecdotal case, but, you know, maybe there are other ways to detect this. um, Yeah,
1: so far, I mean, many, uh, spreading depolarization is a phenomenon where basically everything changes. So Mm -hmm. it's huge. and. There is all the ions, there is the changes in the transporters, in the transmitters. Um, Every small molecule that is unevenly distributed between the intracellular and extracellular space changes during spreading depolarization. It's just the challenge to do it non-invasively. Invasively, for example, if you have an oxygen probe, um, then uh, you can beautifully measure spreading depolarization. Uh, you see that the, the transients. If you have the ECOG with it, you have a perfect recording setup yeah. because then you also get information about the metabolism with the spreading depolarization. You see when the spreading depolarization occurs that very often you will have a drop, a dramatic drop in oxygen. And then hopefully a, re- a recovery it tells you that the situation is still um, not too dangerous for the patient, but that also depends on whether the next one starts five minutes later, then, you know, you, you should interfere. There's something going on.
0: Yeah. And it's, um, I, I know that other places I know here too, is when you start to look, look at these, um, they're there in a, in a incidence level that, that people never expected. And I know that, uh, Sharon Jewell's work with Tony Strong in, uh, in London is at King's they're seeing him in a, in a, an incredibly high number of patients that they, uh, that they monitor. So, and I think, uh, you know, Jed Hardings, uh, gave a, gave a nice plenary lecture at the, uh, Academy of Neurology meeting last year, calling this sort of the, the hidden culprit, uh, that, uh, you just can't see. So,
1: yeah, it's actually, I, I, what I find amazing is that it's kind of the, the culprit that you don't see, but on the other hand, it's a giant. So it's, among all the brain waves that you can have, this is the, 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 the by far biggest wave. So it's kind of paradoxical that on the one hand you don't see it, on the other hand
0: it's the biggest thing you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and we can't see it. We can't see it. Yes, with our with our electrodes right, right, now right. we
1: see it and yeah, we see yeah. it very often. We yeah, see it very yeah. often. Yeah. So. Um, Tell, tell us about death <laughs> yeah I mean this this is kind of um, when you do recordings in the intensive care unit it's um, let's say part of I mean part of a, the life of a doctor also is to um, that uh, usually I mean we try to um, to help the patient to survive to recover um, but sometimes patients develop complications and um, then, uh, they will die. And so during all these years where we do the neuromonitoring, we also uh, recorded um, death, the death of the person during the recording period. And um, this actually is, or was an eye-opener that we just uh, published it, and I published this in, uh, in the Annals of Neurology. Um, because what we see is not surprising to us, Um, but maybe surprising to others that it's exactly the same uh, sequence of events that you also see in other mammals. And um, which means after the circulatory arrest, you see the blood flow going down in the brain and the oxygen drops. And then um, after about 30 seconds, the brain activity stops. But this doesn't mean that the neurons are not functional anymore. You have a kind of a flat line when you do an alternate current electrocorticography. Uh, then there is a silent period. And between two and five minutes thereafter, then the spreading depolarization starts a terminal spreading depolarization as a giant wave. And what the question is what happens during the silent period, and that we know from slice experiment, brain slice experiments, uh, or animal experiments, during this period, you have um, a release of small amounts of neurotransmitter, and um, they are more effective at the somas of the neurons. So they lead to an inhibition of the neurons. These neurons are not dead, although there is no, no heartbeat, there's no blood pressure, but the neurons are still alive and they are polarized. And then, calcium slowly goes into these neurons and activates uh, calcium activated potassium channels, potassium leaves the neurons. Then they start to depolarize slowly. And at the end of this period, then at one spot in the brain, this spreading depolarization wave starts at the spot, it occurs within a few seconds, and then it spreads with a speed of about three millimeters per minute over the whole brain brain cortex, but also uh, in other structures, thalamus, and uh, uh, also in the brain stem. So this means that the dying process takes much longer than uh, you often read in medical textbooks. It's a process that takes minutes, and uh, when people are clinically dead, they are still alive when the spreading depolarization has started, you can still successfully resuscitate the person because spreading depolarization does not mean uh, the marker of death, but it is just the moment when um, the processes uh, start that intoxicate the cells and eventually leads them to death. And the death occurs then over many more minutes. And, and all this is uh, interesting. Um, um, so when we published this case um, from the press, m- the greatest interest was uh, with regard to near-death experiences. Whether we can any anything add to the discussion of near-death experiences, and I think yes, we can, um, because it is often said that the near-death experiences, when somebody is resuscitated, occurs in a period when the when the brain is already completely. Uh, in a state of lost function. But we know from the sequences that we see in brain slices and animals, and we now have also in, in humans, that in this period, you, s- you have still uh, a very special type of neuronal function. And um, and the interesting part, of course, is that we um, it could well be that consciousness is connected um, with a polarization state of neurons. you know, When you think about something, we believe that this has something to do with a, depolaris- a short lasting depolarization of neurons. There we have a process where billions of neurons within a period of a minute or so, undergo a massive depolarization process. So nobody knows that, but if near-death experiences are real, then, of course, in my opinion, the um, uh, the pathophysiological correlate is, um, the, are these processes, uh, first the transition uh, with a silent period, and then the transition into
0: spreading depolarization. Oh, that's fascinating. So
1: yeah, then... I think what, what I find fascinating is that people that have near-death experiences describe things like... Um, um, that time actually is condensed, that they can be young and old, that uh, they can be at the same time in different places. If we think that all our memories are somehow coded in the cells and all our neurons at almost at once become active at the same time, then this is exactly what you would expect. I think the, the I mean, the good, the, uh, the, nice aspect of of this is that reading more about these needed experiences almost all of them are good experiences a positive experience they are kind of life-changing experiences Mm -hmm. Uh, that's positive so maybe there's something there's a a big concert in the end that we can actually actually looking look forward to you know
0: yeah right (laughs) right right. well speaking of that where do you where do you see this field going in the next? I don't know, five years, ten years. I mean, where, or, or where would you want it to go? I mean, we've talked about recording these non-invasively, but other other uh, issues with the science and, yeah. and and the application of this to other areas. I think the mo- the most important uh, aspect of this is that this
1: um, is um, very likely the most powerful. Um, mechanistic biomarker you can have to detect uh, neurological deterioration in intensive care in these acute conditions, in particular, subarachnoid hemorrhage, but also traumatic brain injury. Um, so it's a biomarker. Um, and um, you can continuously record, you can use that to guide your treatment. And I believe this is the number one issue that that is important. So it's important to uh, compare this with the development of neuroimaging um, to do serial neuroimaging and, and to see how it correlates uh, with this. And then the next question is, of course, uh, shall we treat it? And how shall we treat it? Is it good to block it or not? This is maybe the first question that we have to to address. Or let's say the first question is also to establish Approaches how to do such studies because it's a very new field. I mean, we have to make it feasible to use this information for for the for for the treatment of the patients. That is challenging and that is an, a very important issue. Um, and yeah, the block of spreading depolarization that is one possible um, approach. And I think, in my personal opinion, the the, the approach that uh, is the most interesting is to modify the blood flow responses because when a spreading depolarization leads to an additional ischemia through this inverse coupling process through the spreading ischemia, then um, it produces additional damage.
0: well, any any further thoughts on uh, do we uh, wait till uh, Leon to hear the latest? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that um, um, actually i' I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, I'm really optimistic. I, I see that this uh, uh, field moves forward in the right direction, and uh, it's, it's really great uh, to have more and more intensive care units in the world um, doing this neuromonitoring.
0: yeah let's uh, let's hope that's the case and though. Yeah, to uh to you and your research. And um I want to say in closing, I love your new office here <laughs> with the uh these beautiful uh tall ceilings, these windows uh looking out onto some um very cool old brick architecture <laughs> of the school here. So thank you so much for um for doing this interview. Yep. So thank you. Thanks. So thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you enjoy these interviews, please take a moment to rate and review this show on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe to Dick Moberg's Neural Network to receive notifications when future installments are available. And of course, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Moberg Research, Inc. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again soon.